Our scripture reading comes from John 18, verses 28 to 48. Jesus has already been arrested and taken before the high priest by the Jewish police. Then they took Jesus from Caiaphas to, to Pilate's headquarters. It was early in the morning. They themselves did not enter the headquarters so as to avoid ritual defilement to be able, and to be able to eat the Passover. So Pilate went out to them and said, What accusation do you bring against this man? They answered, If this man were not a criminal, we would not have handed him over to you. Take him yourselves and judge him according to your law. The Jews replied, We are not permitted to put anyone to death. This was to fulfill what Jesus had said when he indicated the kind of death he was going to die. Then Pilate entered the headquarters again, summoned Jesus, and asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? Jesus answered, Do you ask this on your own, or did others tell you about me? I am not a Jew, am I? Your own nation and the chief priests have handed you over to me. What have you done? My kingdom is not from this world. If my kingdom were from this world, my followers would be fighting to keep me from being handed over to the Jews. But as it is, my kingdom is not from here. So you are a king? You say that I am a king. For this I was born, and for this I came into the world to testify to the truth. Everyone who belongs to the truth listens to my voice. What is truth? After he had said this, he went out to the Jews again and told them, I find no case against him, but you have a custom that I release someone for you at the Passover. Do you want me to release for you the king of the Jews? They shouted in reply, not this man, but, but Bar Barabbas? Barabbas, even though Barabbas was a bandit. Unmuted yet. There we go. Nice, got, nice job. Thank you very much for that reading. Well, it's uh, great to be with everybody this morning. You know, Christians have always done what they needed to do to get together to worship, even in maybe you might say the most trying circumstances. Uh, from the catacombs, those underground tunnels back in the beginnings of Christianity where they had to hide out to worship, to the Church of the Brethren people having jump ship in Europe to come over to this part of the world so they could be free to worship and do what they felt like they needed to do. Uh, once in South Sudan, I recall a service of consecration for a bishop being moved till later, uh, till earlier on Sunday morning in order to avoid the bombers coming down from the North Sudan because they knew the bombers couldn't get there by then if they had their service early enough. In North Korea on a Sunday uh, in January, about 20 years ago, everyone kept their coats on because no building had heat in it. And North Korea is like Vermont, I mean, or someplace like that in the United States. It was pretty chilly. In fact, you could see your breath when you sang. But that didn't stop people from coming, and boy, did they sing. In Rwanda this morning, Brethren congregations composed mostly of Batwa people, the Pygmy people, will already have worshipped this morning on this Sunday, even though they are down to one meal a day, I've heard, and that would be either corn or beans, or if they want rice, it will, miss, 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 it will mean missing one of those other meals because rice costs twice as much as those other foods. And if you're going to have rice, it's a luxury, so you'll skip a meal some other day. That's what we, I was hearing last week, and maybe you've been hearing some of these stories from around the world, but our partners in Rwanda, Democratic Republic of Congo, South Sudan, they were talking about the virus causing dramatic food shortages. 
because food can't get across borders, the price of food is going up, people aren't able to work, and when they can't work, they don't eat because they work in the day, buy the food, eat it that evening, and they're not able to do that, which is part of why we started this campaign, which some of you may have seen on Facebook, and just yesterday we passed the $10,000 mark to help send some food relief to that part of the world. But I guarantee you those Batwa people, even though they might have come with their stomachs growling, still came to worship this morning. So people do what they've got to do to get together for worship, and like we're sort of being creative this morning. One thing this virus has done by upending our world here in the United States is to show us what life can be like in other parts of the world on a somewhat regular basis, actually. People, whole societies, are often overwhelmed by forces beyond their control. I mean, whether climate change, um, that they didn't cause decimating their crops in Malawi, like we talked about during Sunday school, or young women who are sucked into the global economy and paid pennies to work in the sweatshops making our clothes and stuff, and there's no appetite by consumers or governments or CEOs or shareholders to want to create anything like a fairer global system. Or you can think about native people here, there, everywhere around the world. Their lands, their culture, their spiritual practices disrupted, to put it mildly, by invaders of one stripe or another, where the cavalries or corporations or even Christians sometimes. Well, this is normal life, as it were, for so many people in our world. And we have a small taste of it now, albeit with a $2 trillion safety net around the world. Life spins out of control fairly regularly with nothing like a safety net to catch you when you're falling. Well, I think this can be germane to our topic this morning as it has to do with the truth we choose, what we tend to believe about our world and understand about our world and then how we let it affect us. Now, first, I titled this thing, The Truth We Choose or something like that. First, we have to admit that this phrase is a bit oxymoronic. I mean, isn't truth the truth <laughs> and not subject to our choosing it to be so? Well, I guess it depends on how you define that. If by truth, we mean what any of us or any group or any society chooses as its guiding values or its worldview or its God view, I guess in some sense, this is our truth. No matter what the theologians or the ethicists or the World Health Organization or the newscasters on the other network say, we've got our truth and we're sticking to it. Of course, there are certain immutables that enforce a certain kind of truth. Think about laws and taxes and social pressure, for some the Bible. But in terms of our guiding principles, we individually and collectively are often left to our own devices. Even though, even when it comes to something like arriving at the truth about life and faith, or even the Bible, as we all know, the Bible is subject to interpretation, to put it mildly. So what is the truth? said Pilate to Jesus, and we each may ask each other, until Science Friday this week, my truth about the planet Mercury was that there was certainly no ice down there. It's the closest planet to the sun. It's a baked little hot rock. But then I discovered on Science Friday that there's a different truth, and some of you may have known this way before I knew it, but that at the poles of Mercury, there are craters so deep that the sun never shines. Uh, and just like some of those hollows down in Franklin County, Cindy. Anyway, and um, with no atmosphere to trap in and distribute the heat around Mercury, it is cold, there is moisture evidently on the planet, and it becomes frozen at the bottom of those craters. 
So bring your sled <laughs> if we have an outing to Mercury one of these days. In other words, one key to arriving at the truth may be to open ourselves to new revelation, as we might call it in the church. Things we discover not by space voyages, really, but by voyages into nearer by worlds, the lives of the people and the places that are around us, allowing light to shine on heretofore dark recesses, revealing, who knows, maybe the truth or some segment of it. I think Pilate is honestly seeking the truth in our story today. You have to admit Pilate is in a rough spot. On the one hand, he's got the Jewish religious leaders demanding the death of one of their own on what appeared to Pilate to be trumped up charges, what we might today call, or some would, a witch hunt. <laughs> and on the other hand, Pilate has an empire to defend. And they say this young Jesus has called himself son of God. Now in Pilate's book, there is only one progeny of God, and that would be Lord Caesar, <laughs> which a little later in our story, these suddenly patriotic relig religious leaders are quick to remind him of. We only worship one, and that would be Caesar. But he's genuinely waffling. Pilate is genuinely waffling, seems to be searching, and in his search, he goes to the trouble to have an extended conversation with Jesus. He's trying to get to the bottom of it by going to the source of it this young rabbi for whom he likely has grudging respect, if you think about this story, as Jesus is obviously a force to be reckoned with, and he's cool under fire. And I'm guessing that Pilate has some admiration for that. It's like he, Jesus, knew something Pilate didn't. What do you know, Jesus? What is truth? Now, in his own life, Jesus didn't talk a lot about truth, but more about relationships with God, love and service, with others, love and service, with nature, learn from rather than plunder, seems to be the message in the Gospels. And I think he thought, do these things and the truth will become self-evident. It will be revealed and not as a burden or an onerous list of particularities or platitudes, but as he said elsewhere, you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. Free to what? love and serve? That, of course, may bring its own burden. If we truly seek the truth out there, what we find may make us uncomfortable. To know that in the midst of the global pandemic, many people face some gradation of this as a normal part of their life. Chronic illness, social isolation, deprivation, economic disruption. A lot of people go through this all the time. And of course, a lot of people in our society may do what I call, or may have what I call, drive-by sympathy. <laughs> you know, it's like, back actually, Walt Wilczek, who some of you know that name, Walt Wilczek sent me a quote by Robert Fulgham just yesterday. The quote goes like this, the world does not need tourists who ride by on a bus clucking their tongues. Oh, what a shame, those people. We need those who will stop and step into this world seeking the truth and what it implies for us. That's why this truth seeking can be risky and why in some settings today, the truth speakers are soon off the dais or the aircraft carrier. And why the crowds called for Barabbas release rather than Jesus, better the devil we know and who we know we can lock up again if we need to, than the one who is bedeviling us and who not even a tomb would contain a few days later. 
but there are risks going the other way as well. What we don't know can hurt us as we are left to our own incomplete truth of what our world is and what this may call forth from us. Two Palm Sundays ago, I was preaching at a church about 40 miles from here, my home in, in Blue Ridge, about 40 miles from me. Now, you know that I'm primarily a bicyclist. That's a little out of my biking range. Plus it's down 460, which you know, it's got a narrow shoulder. Anyways, I was going, uh, so I had to go to, after what I do in that case is go get a rental car at the airport. The airport's about 15 miles away. So I biked to the airport, in this case, the day before on the Saturday, pick up the rental car, throw my bike in the back, go home, do the engagement, come back, reverse the process. Well, this particular day, as I biked to the Roanoke Airport on a Saturday, it was chilly. It actually was a few snow flurries, but it fortunately held off until I got to the airport. I don't really care for biking in precipitation. Better snow than rain, though. Anyway, so I get to the airport, get it. I head back out toward home. About halfway home, I'm leaving the city limits of Roanoke. I'm on 460, and if Andy Murray's in the crowd today, he knows 460. Anyway, I'm on Route 460. I see a person walking on the side of the road. No, on the same side that I'm driving on. I know that part of 460. The shoulder along that part of the road is very rough. I don't bike on it. I actually bike on the other side on the shoulder when I'm on that segment because it's rocks, it's uneven, not a good place for a bike or for walking. Plus it has started to snow. Then it hits me, I've got a car. <laughs> I can stop, I can pick somebody up. Not that easy on a bicycle. Anyway, so I pull over up ahead of them about 100 yards, I hop out of the car, I look back, I call back to them, need a ride? At that point, I realized it's a woman. I didn't, they had big coat on, I didn't tell. And it hit me, I've got my biking gear on. You know, the tights, the, the bright thing, I'm looking a little strange. But she starts jogging. So I assume that means yes. So she gets up toward my, to close to my car, I pop over the driver, open the driver's side door, she hops in, it's an African-American woman. Her name is Joyce. I say, where are you going? She says, to the Kroger. I know the Kroger, it's about another half mile, not even a half mile, quarter mile down the road. I say, are you working or are you shopping? She said, I'm working. I'm saying, you couldn't take the bus? She said, no, it stops back there. And I knew where the bus stop was, about a quarter mile, a little more back that way. So she's got about probably three quarters of a mile to walk every day from the bus stop to her place of work, even when it's snowing and even on the rough side of the road. So we get there. Uh, she gets, I pull up to the outside door. She opens the door and starts to step out. I said, have a good day. She just says, please pray for me. Now, I don't know what she had in mind by that comment. I, I don't walk in her shoes really as an African-American woman in our society, but I did have a new appreciation for the value of tra public transportation. I had thought to that point, my truth about public transportation to that point was that we're driving three over three trillion miles in our personal vehicles in this country every year, and we got to get ourselves out of those cars if we want this climate to have a chance. But it came to another preach. The truth was augmented for me on that morning by the realization that having public transportation is an issue of human justice, that we're not enabling the disadvantaged or the poor or the put down in our society to get where they need to go in life if they don't have things like a bus to get them to the place that they're working. Since then, I've gotten on the Regional Transportation Authority, actually, a little committee that meets and talks about biking and, and walking and transportation issues. How do we get ourselves off the bus? that tourist bus that I was referring to earlier. How do we get ourselves off that bus and into the lives and the worlds of our neighbors and nature to see and feel their truth? 
and find out how this may then inform our truth and then how, where this truth may want to take us together. In that sense, we don't so much choose our truth as the truth chooses us. Blessings on you this Palm Sunday.